Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. How many of you have ever heard the term Rapa Nui? So you're like, what in the world is he talking about this morning? It's the Polynesian name for Easter Island. Anybody ever heard of Easter Island? What comes to your mind when you think of Easter Island? You think of these huge statues with big noses that are out there on this mysterious island in the remote area of the Pacific. 887 of these statues to be exact. And there's a lot of mystery as to how these statues got there. Some people believe aliens put them there. Other people believe that they were put there by elephants. The mystery is is that the closest island is over 1,500 miles away. It's a mystery. How did these huge statues get there on Easter Island? It's a mystery. What about the lost city of Atlantis? The philosopher Plato was the first to mention the famous city. In 360 B.C., it supposedly was this great military power that was in power 9,000 years before Plato and somehow sunk into the ocean. Is there a lost city of Atlantis? And if so, where is it? Is it in the Mediterranean? Is it in the Atlantic? Some people say it's down by Antarctica. It's a mystery. Is there a lost city of Atlantis? What about the Bermuda Triangle? Anybody ever got lost in the Bermuda Triangle? There's some mystery surrounding that area of the world where planes and and boats have supposedly disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. What about the Philadelphia Experiment? Anybody ever heard of that? In October of 1943, supposedly the military conducted an experiment on the USS Eldridge in a Philadelphia shipyard where it was claimed to have vanished, disappeared and been teleported to another place in Virginia. Now, the Navy denies that such an experiment happened, but it's a mystery. The Philadelphia Experiment, Easter Island, Bermuda Triangle, all of these mysteries. Now, why do I draw your attention to things that are mysterious? Because we dive into Genesis chapter 6. The first four verses of Genesis chapter 6 are considered to be the most baffling, the most difficult, the most incomprehensible passages in the entire Old Testament. All scholars agree that where we are treading, we are treading into the Bermuda Triangle of Genesis. We are treading into the Easter Island of Genesis, the lost city of Atlantis in Genesis, the Philadelphia Experiment in Genesis. What exactly does this mean? Now, you can get caught up in all the details in what Genesis chapter 6 is trying to say. And you can be baffled, and it can be mysterious, but I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees because there is a a larger picture that sometimes can get lost when we get, get involved in all the details. So here's the big idea for today in the first part of Genesis chapter 6. Here's the big idea. Here's the thesis. Here's the theme. Here's the takeaway. It is simply this. 
God displays sorrowful judgment and sovereign grace in the midst of severe sin. We will see severe sin this morning. We will see sorrowful judgment, and we will see sovereign grace, which leads me to some important questions. Does God have a sovereign right to be angry over sin? Does God feel emotion over sin? Does God feel sorrow? Does God feel deeply? Can sin be so widespread, so pervasive, so severe that God says enough is enough? And then where does grace fit into all of this? The ultimate question is how can God be God? How can God be holy? How can God be righteous and still allow sinners to live and be merciful and just at the same time? So what I want us to do is I want us to navigate these uncertain waters this morning. It's a difficult passage of Scripture, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, I think we'll be able to understand it. So you guys ready to dive in? Let's do it. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to look at just the first eight verses this morning. That's enough for us to handle in one Sunday. You guys ready? Here we go. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This passage of Scripture neatly divides into three categories, three sections. Verses 1 through 4 show satanic sin, sin that stems from Satan. Verses 5 through 7 show us evil that stems from humans. And then verse 8, there's a twist that we'll talk about when we get to the end. What chapter 6 shows us here is the pervasive nature of sin. Now, you may ask, what does it mean to be, per- what's the pervasive nature of sin? What, is, what does pervasive mean, Pastor Sean? Pervasive simply means this, widespread, thoroughgoing, all-encompassing. In other words, we see in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, radical, widespread, pervasive nature of sin. One satanic one human. So let's explore the first section here, verses 1 through 4. And what we see in verses 1 through 4 is the serpent, Satan, his wicked attempt to thwart 
God's plan of bringing about an offspring from the woman who will crush his head. We see Satan's attempt here to try to thwart God's plan, thwart God's purposes. Now, Satan was there in Genesis 3 when God pronounced the curse. And Satan showed up in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain. And as we saw last week, there's the godly line, Adam to Noah. And we had men like Seth, who began to call upon the name of the Lord in prayer. We had Enoch, who walked with the Lord, and his his message matched his lifestyle. And then we had Lamech, who was looking forward to the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. So let me just ask you a question. Do you think it's in the nature of Satan just to sit back and let things go? Or do you think he's going to try everything to thwart God's purposes of bringing about the seed that's going to crush his head? Remember, Genesis 3.15 says there's going to be warfare. There's going to be enmity. There's going to be a clash. And Paul tells us the same thing. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, Paul tells us this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I believe Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 is one of those examples of a cosmic battle of evil. Satanically induced. Now what we're going to look at here are the most difficult passages of scripture some scholars say in the entire bible so we're diving into the deep end of the pool here the 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 mysterious nature and we're trying to figure out what in the world does this mean who are the sons of of god who are the daughters of men who are these nephilim these giants as some of your translations say who are these mighty men of renown what does this mean well there's a lot and a lot of interpretations out there What I want to give to you this morning is the two main predominant interpretations. And I'll let you be the judge and jury to decide which one you adhere to. I tentatively, not dogmatically, come to the second interpretation. But again, this is a mystery, and it's divided right down history. So let me give you the first popular view. The first view is held by men like Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, even Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology. So these are, these are men that we, that we esteem and we're in good company with, this, with these men. This is the first view. The first view states that the sons of God are the godly lineage of Seth and the daughters of men are the ungodly lineage of Cain. And so Seth's line intermarries with Cain's line And so you have this pagan intermarriage between the godly people of Seth and the ungodly people of Cain. Now you'd think that all throughout the scriptures there's this whole idea of intermarriage. You don't intermarry between pagans. And so this line of thinking says that that Seth is the godly line, the godly seed, the godly people, and they're looking at Cain's lineage and they're seeing that they're attractive. And so there's this intermarriage between Seth's offspring and Cain's offspring. They took them to be their wives. They found them to be attractive. They did the unthinkable. They went outside the family line and married the daughters of Cain. 
Here's the problem with this interpretation. There's nothing stated specifically here about intermarriage being a sin. It doesn't just come right out and tell us that that's a sin. And besides that, in the mix of all this, you have the Nephilim, these giants. So who are these Nephilim and who are these giants? So the first view basically says the sons of God represent Seth's line. The daughters of man represent Cain's line. These two lines intermarried, and it was ungodly. It was, it was not God's will to do that. But there's another interpretation. There's a more older interpretation. It's the traditional interpretation. Let me give you the second interpretation. It's the traditional interpretation. It's the one that I tentatively hold to. This was what the early church fathers believed. People like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and Clement and Tertullian. This is what Jewish historians have traditionally believed. Modern day people that believe this are people like John MacArthur and James Boyce. So again, you see how it's divided right down the middle. And I can't be dogmatic on this, but here's what I believe this is saying. The sons of God are fallen angels who come down to earth and have sexual relationships with human women and produce an ungodly demonic offspring. Now you may think that sounds like science fiction, Pastor Sean. Well, let me give you some reasons why I believe that's what this is saying. Again, I don't think we can be dogmatic. If you have a different view, I respect that. I come to this very humbly because this is the most difficult passage in the Bible, and we can't be dogmatic. But let me just give you some reasons. Here's the first reason. It does not say in the text, the sons of Seth saw that the daughters of Cain were attractive. It doesn't say that. Your text says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. So here's my first reason. The terminology, sons of God. That term only occurs three other times in the Old Testament. And in all three times, it refers to angels. If you go back to Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Then the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. You see this repeated in Job chapter 2. You see this repeated in Job chapter 38. The sons of God. These angels came to present themselves before God. And here the text in Genesis says the sons of God. So semantically, language-wise, the only other place we find sons of God is with reference to angels. Now we also, second reason, we find some New Testament scant evidence in the New Testament that may support this view. You find it in two places, in 2 Peter and in Jude. Both these passages speak of angels who left their positions of authority and came down. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5. through for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, 
a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, Peter here makes a reference to fallen angels in the same context as Noah. He makes a connection there. Fallen angels in connection with Noah. He seems to think, Peter does, that there was not only judgment on the earth because of man's wickedness, but there was something related to these fallen angels in the flood. Jude chapter 6, or Jude verse 6, actually. There's only one chapter of Jude. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Both Peter and Jude seem to think that there's something related to angels falling and the flood. Again, we can't be dogmatic on this. And it does sound far-fetched. And some of you may be thinking, your wheels are turning. Well, I, I know Matthew twenty-two thirty by heart, Pastor Sean. That's one verse I've got memorized. Probably not, but it's the verse that says, angels don't marry. In, the, in, the hev- in heaven, it says that People won't marry like the angels won't marry. And so some people say, well, if angels don't marry in heaven, how can they be coming down and having sex with humans? And I would have to answer to you that the text doesn't say anything about the angels not having sex. It just says in heaven, they're not going to marry. I believe when we're in heaven, we're still going to have our own sex. We'll we'll still be able to have our our identity when we're in heaven. So I don't want want you to think that it's so far-fetched that Satan could have induced these angels to look at human women attractively and to go down there and have sex with them and produce a demonic offspring. Now again, it sounds like science fiction. sounds weird. But let me just remind you, there's a lot of weird things that happen in the Bible that can't be explained. Do we not believe the parting of the Red Sea? That's kind of weird. Do we not believe the sun stood still in Joshua? Do we not believe that the axe head floated? Do we not believe in the feeding of the 5,000? Or Jesus walking on water? Or the resurrection of Lazarus? Or turning water into wine? Or even the resurrection of Jesus himself? The Bible's full of unexplainable, miraculous, weird things that we can't explain scientifically or by just the physics of nature. So we can't be dogmatic on this, but the view is these are angels who fell from heaven, came down, had relations with human women, and produced this giant offspring called the Nephilim, an offspring of half-human, half-demonic people that were on the earth during that time. Now, the word Nephilim means, in Hebrew, the fallen ones. The fallen ones. It can also mean giants, the giants who fell. The mighty men of old, the, the, the Hebrew word there is the giborim. And so you think, okay, this is very far-fetched. This sounds very science fiction. What's the point of this? Well, the point is this. Satan is attempting in his master plan somehow to thwart God's purposes by corrupting the human race with demons. If for some reason the seed of the woman is going to come from a demonic offspring, Satan thinks, I can stop the Messiah from being born. Because the Messiah would not be born to a woman who was demon-possessed. Satan hates Genesis 3.15. He knows there's ongoing warfare. And if you go to the book of Revelation, 
We don't have time to do that this morning. Revelation chapter 12, his goal is to attack God's people because he hates God's people and he hates Jesus. And so what we see here is Satan's attempt, his failed attempt, to try to corrupt the human race with this demonic offspring so that the seed of the woman would not be born. The Nephilim. Now, some people say, well, the Nephilim were the giants in Canaan when the spies went in under Caleb and Joshua in Numbers chapter 13. I don't necessarily believe that's the same Nephilim because who gets destroyed in the flood? Every single person except for Noah and his family. So I believe this half-demonic, half-human race, they were destroyed in the flood just like everybody else was destroyed. But up until that point, they had an influence on the earth. And so the whole issue here is that it's Satan's wicked attempt to somehow thwart God's sovereign purposes with the seed of the woman, to really try to cut short the Messiah coming. Again, we can't be dogmatic on this. It's very mysterious. But then we have this whole thing in verse 3, where God says, my spirit's not going to abide in man forever, for he's flesh. He's corrupt. And so God says, I'm going to cut short his lifespan. Remember before, back in chapter 5, these people were living to be 800 years old, like Methuselah. Methuselah was like 969 years old. God says now it's going to be around 120 years old. Now, verses 1 through 4 show Satan's attempt to try to thwart God's purposes. And if that weren't bad enough, what we see in verses 5 through 7 is the human aspect of it. Here's what we see in verses 5 through 7. The severity of human sin results in God's sorrowful judgment. The severity of human sin results in God's sorrowful judgment. I think verse 5 is the scariest verse in the Bible. Let's just read verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's called total depravity. That's where the world is so wicked, so bad, so pervasively sinful that God says, enough is enough, I'm wiping out humanity. It's total depravity. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody was like miniature Hitlers running around being as evil as they could be. But what it does mean, total depravity means that here in this passage of Scripture, sin had affected every part of their being. And we see three things about sin here from this one verse. Three things about sin. Here's the first thing about sin. First and foremost, sin is an issue of the heart not just external deeds. What does he say here? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart. It's in the heart. When we think of sin, we often think of outward actions like murder or lying or stealing or adultery. And yes, those are sins. We commit outward sins in our bodies, but why do we do those? Because sin stems first and foremost from the heart. Listen to what Jesus says about the wickedness of the heart in Mark chapter 6. I mean, Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, 21. This is Jesus speaking. For from within, out of the heart of man, 
come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus is saying that sin comes from the heart. And Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I get very bothered or very concerned when I hear Christians say, I'm just going to follow my heart. I know what you mean by that, but you can't just follow your heart because it's deceitful and desperately wicked and you're following your heart's going to lead you straight down a path of destruction. Every intention of their hearts was wicked. So the first thing we see about sin here is it's a heart issue first and foremost, but secondly, it's pervasive. There's that word again. Listen, pervasive means it's, it's all-encompassing, it's widespread. The Lord saw the, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Every, only. There's no let down to sin. It's, a, it's pervasive. It affects everything about us. It's, it's widespread. Paul says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, no, not even one. So not only is sin an issue of the heart, but it's pervasive in the sense that it affects everything that we do. No one's perfect, no one's righteous, all of us have, are corrupt. But here's the third thing that makes it scary. It's continuous. Did you catch it? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It is a continual evil. Think about a world where this is the norm. Every single person is operating out of the wickedness of their heart. That's all they do, and they do it all the time kind of sounds like the world we live in now. But the world was so corrupt at that time, so much evil, so much wickedness, so much violence, that God responds. Now, what did God see in Genesis 1.31? Just back up to Genesis 1.31 for a moment. Genesis 1.31, at the very end of chapter 1 of Genesis, and God saw... Everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And just a few chapters later, five chapters later, verse 5, chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So, how does God respond to this evil? He responds with righteous anger and deep sorrow. Look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, the King James Version has a weird translation of that word. The King James says God repented. I have a little problem with that terminology because it makes it sound like God did something wrong. God made a mistake. 
This is not saying that God made a mistake in creating humans and he regretted that somehow he made this huge mistake as if God's not sovereign or God didn't know what he was doing. Because if you go to Numbers chapter 23, 19, it says God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And then you've got 1 Samuel 15, 29, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. This is not God being like out of, out of his sovereignty here saying, I'm really sorry, I, I messed things up. What this is here, and if you look at the language, it is wrath. It's sorrowful wrath. It's righteous anger. The word there that says it was grieved him to his heart, that word grieved in the Hebrew can literally mean righteous anger. It brought God to tears to think about the wickedness of humans. Now let me ask you as humans, because you, you understand this, have you ever felt righteous anger and deep sorrow at the same time? Sure you have. At one point in our lives, we felt a righteous anger and a deep sorrow at the same time. Do you not get angry and sad over human trafficking? Do you not get angry and sad over child abuse? Do you not get angry and sad over abortion on demand? Do you not get angry and sad about the decisions of your children or your grandchildren? You can have anger and sadness coming together in the same emotion as humans. Let's give God the right to be God and have it as well. But here's the issue with God. Because God is holy and God is righteous, the anger that he expresses is a holy anger, and the sadness he expresses is a holy sadness. We can't understand an infinite being. But God here is expressing righteous anger over sin and deep sorrow over sin. One commentator said it like this, This anguish does not reflect impotent remorse. It entails God's angry response at the injury inflicted by human rebellion. In other words, it's not like God's made a mistake or God's out of control or God has lost his sovereignty or somehow God has really messed things up. No, it's God as sovereign looking down at his creation and feeling a righteous anger and a sadness at the same time because things had gotten so wicked. Things had gotten so out of control. And it really stems from Genesis 3.15. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought death into the world, and then Satan comes along and tries to thwart God's purposes. And in verse 7, God makes the pronouncement. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. He's going to blot out everybody. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, it was a curse upon the ground. In Genesis chapter 4, it was a curse upon Cain. And in Genesis chapter 6, it's a curse upon everybody. And not just people, but animals and livestock and creeping things on the ground. It's so evil, it's so rampant. Here's the thing. Satan has tried to influence and bring in this ungodly demonic race. Humans, by their own evil intentions of their heart, have continually done evil, and so the world is corrupt, as corrupt as it could ever be. 
And God, in sorrowful anger and in righteous justice, says, enough's enough, I'm going to blot out humanity. And yet, in the midst of satanic rebellion and pervasive human sin, verse 8 gives us a twist. Verse 8 gives us the gospel. Look at verse 8. God displays sovereign grace in the midst of severe sin. But Noah. How does verse 8 start? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now the text does not say Noah earned favor. It doesn't say Noah bought favor. It said Noah found favor. And let me just give you a little bit of Hebrew here. This is the very first time the word grace shows up in the Bible. That's the word grace there in the Hebrew. Literally, God graced Noah. Now, obviously, God showed grace to Adam and Eve when he clothed them with animal skins, and God even showed grace to Enoch and to Seth, but this is the very first time the word shows up explicitly in the Bible, grace. And where does it show up? Where does grace first show up in the Bible? Right after the worst passages about human sin and demonic activity ever in the Bible. Does that not give you hope? That in the midst of extreme demonic, satanic oppression and extreme sin, God shows grace. God is not under obligation to give grace to Noah. God is not under any obligation to give grace to anyone. God could have very easily blotted out Noah and everyone and still have been just and right. He has every right to do what he wants as a sovereign God and blot out everyone. He has the right to do so. He does not owe anybody grace or mercy. What God owes people is justice. So in spite of the wickedness of the world and in spite of the satanic attack to bring about the Nephilim and the pervasive wickedness, God says in his sovereign grace, I'm choosing one family to extend mercy and grace to Noah. Isn't this the beauty of the gospel? We do not have a God who's distant. If anything, this shows us we have a God who feels and a God who acts to get rid of sin. God could have just looked down at the pervasive sin and he could have gotten angry and he could have gotten sorrowful and he could have just unleashed his wrath and said, that's it. But in the midst of all that pervasive wickedness, God says, I'm going to show grace. I'm going to show salvation. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we look at the depths of our hearts and we look at the evil intentions of our hearts, what do we find lying right there? We're just as wicked. We're just as rebellious. We're just as corrupt. We're just as evil. And God has every right to blot us off the map of human history. But he doesn't do it. He chooses to show grace and mercy, but he does it in a way that's scandalous. Why in the world would God send his only son who was without sin perfect in every way to bear our sin. That's scandalous. It doesn't make sense. 
Why would God send his perfect only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and then to die on the cross bearing our sins as our substitute? And if you think about God's flood, wiping and blotting people out, Jesus, when he was hanging on that cross, he experienced the flood of God's wrath upon himself, taking upon the sin that you and I should have taken. And in a sense, Jesus was blotted out on the cross so that you and I would never have to be blotted out. And what did Jesus do on the cross? He defeated Satan and all of his feeble attempts to thwart God's plan, and he defeated the worst of our sins. And why did God do it? Was it anything good within us? No, it was out of his sheer mercy and grace for sinners like you and me that God decided to do this. And like Noah, we can't earn this grace We can't work for this grace. We can't be good enough to merit this grace. It has to be God and God alone who sovereignly gives this grace because he loves sinners. Now, I was thinking about this passage of Scripture. Wicked, pervasive sin, but Noah was graced. Wicked, pervasive sin, but Noah. You see this pattern all throughout the Bible. So let me give you a mere image of Genesis 6. If there's a mere image of Genesis 6, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 for just one moment. Ephesians chapter 2 is the mere image of Genesis chapter 6. What's the pattern of Genesis chapter 6? Extreme, severe, pervasive, corrupt sin. But Noah was graced. See if you can see the pattern here when I read Ephesians chapter 2 to you. Verses 1 through 9. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Does that sound like Genesis 6? Every intention of their thoughts was evil all the time. There's wickedness. There's pervasive wickedness. We're we're following our flesh. We're following Satan. We're dead in our transgressions. We are dead in our sins. We are children of wrath. Things look hopeless. Sin is pervasive. But, look at verse 4, but God. What did Genesis have? But Noah. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no man may boast. Extreme sin, but grace. The wicked attempts of Satan to destroy God's plan was crushed by Jesus on the cross. The wicked attempts of human rebellion to follow the evil imaginations of their hearts was crushed by Jesus on the cross. Satan's attempts were crushed. Human attempts were crushed. That's why we can sing the wonderful words of in Christ alone. No power of hell nor scheme of man 
can ever pluck me from his hand. Still he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. If you're a Christian this morning, the power of hell cannot touch you. And your own sin cannot condemn you. Satan can bring everything he wants, and your evil imaginations of your heart can bring everything he wants, but Christ crushed them both in the cross. But grace. Here's what you need to know about the gospel. This is from Tim Keller. He says, We are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are more wicked than you ever dared believe? That the every intention of your heart is evil all the time, and without Christ, you're dead in your sins. You're a child of wrath. You're enslaved to your flesh and enslaved to Satan. Do you realize that you're more wicked than you ever believed? But the gospel says, in spite of that, you are more loved and accepted in Christ than you could ever dare hope. If you understand those two truths, you understand the gospel. The gospel of sovereign grace. And so would we this morning turn our eyes upon Jesus? And what did Jesus do on the cross? He crushed Satan. And he crushed your sin. So that you and I could be forgiven. We could be accepted. We could not have to experience the wrath of hell. We could have eternal life. We could have the blessings of God upon us in Jesus Christ. I love it. Wickedness, but Noah. Would you be a but Noah this morning? In the pervasive wickedness of your life, would you just look to Jesus and receive him as your Savior and let it be said of you, but Noah. God graced Noah. God, rich in mercy, has shown you grace. He'll set you free. He'll shower you with grace upon grace if you look to Jesus this morning. Let me ask you to bow your heads. There may be some of you in this room this morning that are overwhelmed with your sin. You're caught in a web of sin. You are tripped up in your sin. The message for you this morning is that Jesus took your sin. He conquered your sin. And he removes it as far as the east is from the west. Would you believe in the power of the gospel and receive Christ as Savior this morning? There may be others of you in this room who are being attacked by Satan. There's the attempts of Satan to thwart God's plan in your life and satanic attacks are coming upon you and there's some spiritual warfare issues going on in your life. Just remember that Christ crushed Satan. So if you're here this morning and you feel overwhelmed by Satan or you feel overwhelmed by your own sin, take heart that Christ has conquered them both and he grants you grace. 
We sang it earlier. Though Satan should buffet and trials should come, let this blessed assurance that Christ has looked upon my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. We come helpless this morning. I hope you've come helpless this morning. We are weak, we are helpless, we are frail. We are sinful and we are weak. But we serve a risen and great Savior who can meet every single need in this room through his sovereign grace. Would you look upon Jesus this morning? Spend some time in prayer. Ask him to search your heart this morning. And let's spend some time going before our great God. Pray in just a moment, but there may be many of you in this room this morning that maybe it's your first time in this church or you came with a friend and you, you really don't quite understand everything that I've said this morning. But there's a gnawing in your heart. There's a thumping in your chest. It could be that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself. And I'm going to be available after the service to be down here and we'll take as much time as you need. If you need them, some things explained to you or if you need prayer, Pastor Andrew and others will be down here. We don't want you to leave until maybe your questions have been answered or you've had time to pray. We want to be here for you. We also want to say thank you for coming. If you're here today and this doesn't make sense to you or, or you find yourself not really believing all this, we're glad you're here. We want you to understand the truth and we want to love you this morning. So after we pray and after we sing, we'll be down here at the front to, to meet with you if you would so desire to do that. Father, thank you for those verses of Scripture that have the B-U-T's in them, but but God being rich in mercy. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Father, we are surrounded by a wicked world. We are surrounded by satanic attacks. And we, Lord, we look at our own flesh and we are just overwhelmed with sin. And it can drag us down and it can make us depressed and it can get us to the point where we see there's no hope. Help us to look up and outside of ourselves at you, Jesus, who made an end to all the sin. Help us to confess our faith in you. Help us to believe the gospel, Lord. I'm afraid that so many of us in this, we, we know the gospel by heart, Lord, but do we believe it? Do we really believe it? Do we believe our sins have been nailed to the cross? We bear them no more. Do we believe, Jesus, you've conquered Satan? Do we believe that you've risen from the tomb? Do we believe that you've poured out your Holy Spirit? Do you believe you've given us everything we need for life and godliness? Do we believe these things? Increase our faith this morning to believe, Lord. We are weak and frail in the storm, but you're a great and sovereign God, and so we turn our eyes to you. Would you come and meet us and visit us and give us grace upon grace this morning? And we ask this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.